Yesterday, I, as we were experiencing just some glorious things, and I want to ask all those who were here uh, either Friday night or yesterday, raise your hands real quick. Raise your hands. There you go. Okay. So you can see folks who were here. If you want to know, if you want to ask them, well, tell me what went on and how it was and tell me what you learned and so on and so forth. They are, they are ready to tell you about what they learned about dancing with God. Okay, so, so, so just ask them, so tell me what you learned about the dance, and they'd love to share it. But as we were going through yesterday, of course, I couldn't help but also realize is that it's a very emotional weekend for all of us as Americans. All of us, as we, on the 20th anniversary of uh, the worst uh, terrorist attack uh, in history, really. Emotional weekend as we remember that horrendous and vicious attack on our country by Islamic extremists committed, committing acts of terror in various locations around our country. If you've been on the television at all this weekend, you've seen the remembrances, you've seen the memorials, you've seen uh, the folks recalling what it was like, what that day in September 2001 felt like. Let me ask you, how many of you can remember, I do, how many of you can remember where you were in that moment when you found out? Yeah? Mm -hmm. You can remember exactly where you were when you found out. Because time stopped in some ways. Much like those of us who are in the room that are old enough remember the moment we heard that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Or some of us in the room when we first heard that Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. A few here might even be old enough to remember when they first heard the bombing of Pearl Harbor and how time stopped. But even all those events I just mentioned, actually, I don't think really compare to what happened 20 years ago. When 19 terrorists committed murder-suicide on 2,996 Americans, 265 died on airplanes, 2,606 died in the World Trade Center, 125 died at the Pentagon, and over 6,000 were injured, and some went on to die later. It remains the deadliest terrorist attack in history. Do you remember how you felt that day? You know where you were, but do you remember how you felt? The mixture of stunned grief, fear. Was our entire nation being attacked? Where was it going to happen next? And then the most incredible outpouring of patriotism and love for our country, our relatively young nation. We had never experienced the kind of patriotism that occurred immediately after 9-11. Do you remember how we all flew American flags from our cars. It's the first time that anybody had devised a way with those little plastic things you put in the mirror, I mean in the uh, window, where you could fly your flag. Now, of course, all the colleges have their flags that they fly and all the, all the pro football sports. They all, but but that, those flags didn't even occur 
They didn't even exist before 9-11. Those kind of flags. It was 9-11 that caused us to all of a sudden realize we could fly our flag wherever we were going. The flag companies themselves couldn't even keep up with the demand. You remember how for months, imagine this, for months, vote after vote in the Congress of the United States was nonpartisan. Vote after vote in the Congress of the United States was focused on healing our nation, focused on adjusting to helping our nation and its people, helping our nation learn how the events of that day changed our lives forever. Changed our daily lives forever. It changed the way we traveled. Changed the way we did business. Changed the way we did news and journalism. Changed the way we did government. All was changed because of the event of that day. I will say to you, that over these 20 years, though, we have also sadly learned how many ways it did not change us. We thought the unity we felt at the time was going to last forever. We thought that the resolve we had was going to be forever. The common goals we were experiencing were going to last. Those of us who had been praying for spiritual revival in this country, we believed, okay, it's here. It's here. Do you know that the church attendance increase that occurred right after 9-11, the church attendance increase only lasted for less than a year. And for the last 19 years, church attendance has actually diminished more dramatically than any of the demographers predicted before 9-11. So you see, dear saints, we have learned the hard lesson again that though a catastrophe will bring us as human beings together for a while, it will not change, not truly change our individual selves or our collective selves. We have learned again that we seem to continue to hope that someday, we continue to hope that someday, somehow, some way, some particular ideology, some particular political perspective, some particular philosophy, some particular economic system, some, some great scientific or medical breakthrough will eventually, we keep hoping that one of those things will eventually make our lives, our families, our marriages better, make it stronger and safer, all these things, though good to life, okay? All these things of this economic system we have and the political system we have and, and the philosophy and ideologies that any one of us might adhere to, all of them are fleeting. They can only cause temporary change in our life. They can only cause temporary change in a nation, a people. 
because we have always, ever since the Garden of Eden, cycled back to our own selfish, it's about me and I want to be in control selves. I want what I want when I want it. And I want what I want now. And I want to determine what's best for me. And I don't want somebody else, let alone God, to determine what's best for me. And I know good church-going folks faithful in the faith who really have still not let go and let God do in their lives what only God can do. You see, this is exactly what we hear in the text that I've chosen for today in the prophet Ezekiel. Because see, it's not the first time or the last time that, 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 that the people whom God loves, who does God love? You. And he loves me. And he loves all that he has created and all his people. He loves everybody. And guess what? He loves you unconditionally. And he would love you to understand that he only wants the very best for you. And he has always wanted that. And he wanted it for his chosen people, the Hebrews, who continually would come to him and say, oh, we're going to do your thing, Lord. We're going to follow your way. We're going to be your people. And then they would go off and do their own thing and be their own way. And a catastrophe would come. And then they'd be crawling back to God again, saying, Lord, we want to do your thing. We want to be your people. And then they would go off and they would go do their thing and be their own people. And then another catastrophe would come. It's that atmosphere, it's that reality that, that God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he speaks to Jeremiah and speaks to so many of the prophets because his people kept doing the same thing. You, you remember what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again except expecting a different result. That's exactly what God's people did. We still do it. But God tried to say through Ezekiel and through the prophets. This is what he said. And I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more than you heard read this morning. Therefore, I say to my people, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Why does God want to act in your and my life? He loves us desperately. He loves us unconditionally. But ultimately, he does not want to act in our lives for us because then whom would it be all about? Us again. No, he wants to act for the sake of his holy name. My holy name, which has been profaned among the nations, to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name and which has been profaned among the nations, which have been profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, through you, through you, people of God, if you will let me do in you what I want to do in you, through you, 
I will vindicate my holiness. I will take you and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. We believe that is the land we get to occupy even now, the kingdom of God. And I will sprinkle clean, and this is where the reading today picked up. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from, your, from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, your idols of ideologies and political systems and economic systems. I will cleanse you from all your idols, and I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit my Holy Spirit within you and that and that alone will cause you to be able to walk in my statutes and cause you to be able to obey my law You see, God's people notorious for continually coming to God and then walking away, continually coming to God and then walking away. I know I've done it in my life over and over again. I've experienced the same cycle of coming and saying, I'm yours, Lord. And then I go do my own thing. I'll do anything, Lord. I'll go anywhere. I'll be your servant, Lord. And over and over again, especially in the first 20 years of my ministry, now in almost 40 years of ministry, over and over again, I would eventually go my own way. But let me tell you what happened for me, at least, some 20 years ago. I had experienced the Holy Spirit early on in my Christian walk. I'd experienced the, the vibrancy and the power and the glory and the, and, and, and the joy of the Holy Spirit early in my ministry. And I'd led many others to experience the joy of the Holy Spirit in those first 20 years. And 20 some odd years ago, some of you are aware that I left my previous denomination because my previous denomination had lost its way, it had lost its moorings, it had lost its grounding in the holy word of God. It began to believe that it could rewrite the word of God. It truly, it actually even had bishops who said, we wrote the Bible, we can rewrite the Bible. And I couldn't live in that system and I couldn't lead in that system and I couldn't feel like I was God's in that system and so I left. It was one of the hardest decisions I'd ever made in my life because I was a good soldier. I was, I was a good company man. I did exactly what the church told me to do and I, I always wanted to be known as that. And so even though I took part in the very beginning of, of starting a new movement, which is now the Anglican Church of North America, and I, along with hundreds and thousands of other people who did that at the time, and we began, to, we began to start this great movement, nonetheless, I was still lost somewhat. I was still searching somewhat. And I spent a couple of years doing leadership development 
you know what happens when somebody does consulting, it means that they really can't find another job, so they call it consulting. You know? <laughs> I did leadership development. I did it all around the country. In fact, I did, it, I did it in South America. I did it in great parts of the world, okay? And I was good at it. And I changed lives doing it. I changed congregations doing it. And as you can tell, I didn't stay very humble about it. And I got to a point where I realized, I said, okay, Lord, I don't think I'm ever going to go back into pastoral ministry again. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to go back into pastoral ministry. Several churches had looked at me, not in my tradition, but in other traditions. And, and the minute they found out that I came from a denomination that was trying to rewrite uh, the scriptures, they would say, well, maybe not you. Maybe, maybe we won't make you, uh, you know, the senior pastor. Maybe, you know, not you. And I remember vividly the day, it was actually a week before Palm Sunday, and, or the week up, leading up to Palm Sunday, and I remember vividly the day that I made the decision that I was going to walk away from ordained ministry forever, I was actually offered a job to develop a, a leadership development office in a big corporation in Austin. I thought, this is great. God, it must be, it must be your provision for my girls because they're getting ready to go to college, and Lord knows I didn't know how I was going to pay for that. So I said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll walk away. I was deathly ill for three days, four days really. I, I couldn't, I, 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 I was throwing up, I couldn't move, I thought I had the flu. And the night before Palm Sunday, I realized it wasn't physical, it was spiritual. That by my decision, I had decided to step out from the will of God, to step out from being in alignment with God's will, and I, I was going to again again, again, do my own thing. So I got up on Palm Sunday. I didn't even tell Trisha or the girls where I was going. I just got up early enough to go to a Palm Sunday service. I decided to go to a Palm Sunday service at the most liturgical church I could find because it was my roots. It was, I wanted to go someplace that would have the great traditions. I would want to go someplace that had incense. I just, I just needed all of those things, okay? Little, little did I know that in the midst of that service, as I said to the Lord, okay, Lord, I have no idea what this means. but I'm yours again. I'm totally yours again. And show me how to not walk away from that again. And there in the midst of that very traditional, very uh, almost stuffy church in some ways, the Holy Spirit came and filled me in a way that I had not experienced except all the way back to my initial conversion 20 plus years before. The very next day, that morning, I was driving to one of the churches that I was consulting at. Deacon Lisa's husband, Scott, who was a good friend of mine, and I, con I had continued to remain friends with them even though I didn't live here anymore, he called me and he said, what are you doing? 
And I said, well, I'm driving to an to appointment at church I'm consulting. And he said, well, maybe you should pull over. And I thought, no, something's happened to one of the kids, you know, Father Michael. You know, Father Michael. I thought maybe something had happened to Father Michael. Something happened to Lisa. I, I thought he was going to give me some kind of horrible news. So I pull over at a park in Austin, Texas. And I remember bag phones? Okay, I, I was on my bag phone. Some of us are old, old enough to remember bag phones, okay? I'm on my bag phone, right? And he says, I know this is going to be a really hard question for you to answer, but would you ever come back and be our pastor? Only 24 hours after I had said, Lord, okay, I'm yours. Just show me how I can remain yours. Yes, the rest is history, though I never dreamt that I would, to be honest with you, I never, I, I, at that point, the idea of being a bishop was the worst thing in the world, and on any given day, it still is, by the way, I'm just telling you. Okay. But I never dreamt I was going to be a bishop, I, but, you know, I, but, but the Lord was saying, okay, I'm going to put you back into pastoral ministry, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to show you how to, at the very least, walk away less from me than you did before. And that's what I particularly want you to hear today. What he has shown me over these last many years is that when I finally surrendered my total life to him on that Palm Sunday, that he did come and take what had become a heart of stone. You can't make the kind of decisions I was making without a heart of stone. You can't walk away from the Lord the way I was walking away from the Lord without a heart of stone. Trisha's and my marriage was not in a good, good shape at that point because of all that stuff. You can't live that kind of life without a heart of stone. He took and did a heart transplant on that Palm Sunday. But what I didn't know is that though that was his promise that he would do it if, if I would let him, that I still had to take part in the work of the transplant. That I had to take part in what he began in me and what he did in a heart transplant. You know what, after you get a heart transplant, do you think you can just go back to your old way of life and just live the way you did before, eating all the cholesterol and everything, you know, whatever? No, you've got to take part in keeping yourself healthy. And I all of a sudden realized that though I believed totally in the, the, the life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit, which many have experienced this weekend. I'm praying others will experience even during this service if you go to a prayer team and ask God to come and take your heart of stone and do a transplant, whatever it looks like in your life. But this is what I also know. God will come and do that, and then this is what he expects us to do. God commands us to do the very thing that he promises to do in the new covenant. We come alongside God, yes. He doesn't need us, but 
We have to take part in it. This biblical picture that God does this decisive heart transplant. This, this heart circumcision he talks about in the Bible. That we have to be ready to do this. And I heard Dr. John Piper do a great teaching on this a few years ago. We have to be ready to do what Paul talks about when he says you have to behold and see and believe what God is doing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image of God from one degree to, of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is in is the Spirit. Do, do you see? He's saying the Spirit comes, but you have to be ready to acknowledge and behold the glory. So I found myself 20 years ago, all of a sudden, I found myself that I, 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 never, I never prayed any longer without giving God glory. I never asked for things anymore without giving God glory. I never begged or beseeched or, or went before him on my knees without giving him glory. Because Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and give him glory. How does this happen? Well, Paul also says in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith, faith is the tender, dependent opposite of rebellion and stone cold heart, resistance. Faith is the, is the opposite of self-reliance. And faith comes by hearing, Paul says. We look to Jesus. We look to him with our ears because we, the ears of our heart look through the ears of the mind as the word of God is read and preached and presented and as we open it each day and we have to be soaked in God's word. And then the third is that we have to trust. We just have to trust. And, and, and let me tell you, friends, if your parents were like my parents and they taught you this, they were wrong. Trust is not earned. Trust is a decision. Because let me tell you, if trust were earned, what has God ever done to lose your trust? And yet we struggle trusting God more than almost anybody. Trust is a decision, and it will always be a decision, even when you've broken out in a relationship or had a bruised relationship or whatever, and you just can't trust the person anymore. The only way that it'll ever be remedied is that someday, sometime, you're going to have to decide to trust that person again, no matter what they've done or haven't done. So what comes alive when the old, hard, stone heart 
is crucified and dead and taken out by God. Well, we get to then live by faith. We get to constantly give him glory. We get to trust him if we decide to trust him. I was amazed yesterday at when folks were coming up for prayers, and I'm always amazed at this, that so often the things that people are struggling with has exactly to do with what we're talking about right now. They've either lost trust in God or they lost trust in somebody or they've lost trust in themselves or they no, they no longer see the glory of God or they've never known the glory of God. These are the things that people bring when they're asking for prayers. God will send his Holy Spirit and begin the heart transplant, do the heart transplant, and then we just have to walk off and live into the heart transplant. So today, we're going to confirm some folks right now. We're going to receive some folks and really thankful we're going to be doing that. But during communion, we're going to have prayer stations, one right here in front of the band, one right here by the piano, one back in that corner, that hallway corner back there, one in that corner. We're going to have four prayer stations, and I know that St. Tim's has three prayer um, stations, and so Deacon Lisa and Father John, if you'll be another prayer station, maybe back in, in, in one of those, so we'll have four. You don't have to. Some of you should, but you don't have to. Be, be willing to go and ask God to fill you more with his Holy Spirit, to do a heart transplant in you if you need, if you feel like you're ready to, to have him do that. Let him do that work in you and let somebody pray over you for it. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for these saints. I'm so thankful for their lives. I'm so thankful for their marriages. I'm so thankful for their families. And Lord, you know that every one of us struggle with a heart of stone. Every one of us. But I also believe that even this day, you are going to do miracles in this room. And you're going to do heart transplants in this room today. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.